Welcome to Muse and Hearth, a podcast for women cultivating their minds as well as their homes. I'm Valerie Abraham, and today I'm joined by my sister-in-law and co-host, Lydia Fukushan. Hi, Lydia. Hi there. And we're coming back after a good little break here, um, talking about hospitality. This is our second episode on the topic. Um, We've been a little busy practicing some hospitality of our own, which has kept us from (laughs) recording on our usual schedule. But we're excited to be back and talking about Robert Capon's The Supper of the Lamb. And uh, at first, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think sometimes he goes by Father Capon, too. So there's a number of different names that you can find him under. But Yeah, and the edition I have is The Modern Library Food. So I have the same one. Yeah, it's a spinoff of The Modern Library, and they have a whole um, food section, basically, which mm-hmm. also uh, I've been meaning to say I would be really curious to read the other ones, Valerie. So mm. we might find some I fun stuff I, there. Yes, because I, I think they do a lot of, um, well, as the name would indicate, older books, older classics. Uh, I think um, when I took a class, I know you took the same class, but I may have had a different book list. The Aesthetic Astronomy class with Joshua Apple, they had... Um, Oh, what was his name? There was an Italian chef who also had one, and it was published by a memoir of sorts, and it was published by the Modern Library Food Classics. Oh, okay. Um, so there's another one I noticed so, that was Polish. So they definitely grab, mm. um, you know, different international mm-hmm. chefs, um, which is interesting. Um, they they look like a really interesting read. So I had um, yes, I've only read The Supper of the Lamb from this particular collection, but. Um, More to discover. Yes. Excited about that. One of my favorite topics. So I guess a good starting point really is to um, explain why we think the Supper of the Lamb, which is a culinary reflection, why that would pertain to hospitality. And uh, Mm. I think a pretty good start is to say, um, you know, hospitality usually often and usually involves food and feasting and eating together. Um, right. The title itself Fe- being yeah. the supper feasting of the lamb. Is kind of, right. Feasting is kind of the, biblically speaking, the archetype of hospitality. It's not that, like you were saying, not that every single time you exercise hospitality, food is involved, but in its highest sense, it's not only food that's involved, but feasting that's involved. And you could make the case that food should usually be involved. <laughs> I don't it's know. True. In uh, my opinion. When, <laughs> when the angel stopped by Abraham's tent, he didn't just uh, offer them a cozy a sheepskin. He, right. Right. <laughs> or right. she exactly light a little candle. Um, he went and, went and, and butchered the, the fatted calf, right? Or, or whatever it was. Or, yes. <laughs> So that seems right. like a pretty decent intro to, you know, why we, why we would consider this a book to read when you're thinking about mm-hmm. the topic of hospitality. And um, certainly when involving family life um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, just in general, you, there's a lot to be covered when you think about mm-hmm. hospitality to children that you're cooking for or your spouse. Yes. Um, Friends that you bring into your household, um, feeding feeding your people right. <laughs> is a real right. way to show and I, love and hospitality. 
Absolutely. And I think one of the themes that uh, really comes through in this book is um, just how hospitable God is towards us with uh, via food um, and how hospitable he's made the world. And that when we receive that kind of hospitality, we delight in it. And the kind of delighting that Capon is describing, you can't really do alone fully. I mean, you can to a certain extent, but it's something that just spills over. The joy of it spills over into something that is naturally shared. It's not just, um, you know, an abstract reflection on here's some theological thoughts on food. It's the kind of theology that makes you want to go cook a really good dish and then share it. Right. It's not that you have to share it. It's that you get to share it. Right. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) This is the feeling you get. Yeah. Um, I think it probably, um, that whole idea of delighting really is a theme of the book, mm-hmm. how God delights in us mm-hmm. and how we should delight in the things that he's made in the world. Right. And I, um, having gone along and read this, I think it was my second read through, um, but it's been quite a while since I've read it. Um, I was really impressed by, um, impressed at what was impressed upon me is a better way to say that was how Capon really doesn't want lukewarmness. Hmm. in any approach to anything. And that's what you'll see when he meditates on something like an onion. You know, he spends pages (laughs) or at least paragraphs (laughs) meditating on an onion. And you're going, why? Mm -hmm. Why so much time on an onion? But he's delighting in it. Right. And that's actually uh, reminds me, the first time I read this book, um, I think I actually heard it read aloud and I had, well, our family had recently moved here from France and it seemed almost odd to us. Like, what's, what's the big deal with this Capon book? Why does everyone love it so much? It's so, it it felt almost over the top. And it was, I think, because coming from France, we didn't realize how different the food culture was here. So it seemed like he was kind of stating the obvious. But and then actually, we got here yeah. and started living in American culture. It's like, oh, wow, wow. There, Capon is sorely needed. And now rereading it a couple times since then, it's one of my favorite books. It does help uh, ever, to I think. have it written down to sort of, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's great to understand it all, but... Um, sort of esoterically in your head, but to, to really work through these issues. And as you said, especially in an American culture, because we really do have a, a dearth of this, um, right. Just who, sitting who still light and food, right. Just sitting still long enough to appreciate, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. the beauty of, of, of food in particular, but he really extends it out, um, to the earth in general, just right. what God's creation right. in general. Right. Thinking even of um, the way he talks about wine, for example, there's no way that you can drink wine in the way he talks about without it being naturally connected to fellowship with, with people around you and, and therefore hospitality. Right. And it, the delighting in God's creation doesn't stop at inanimate objects. It, right. it flows or, or starts really with delighting in the people God's made and then flows right. out um, or flows in both directions, I guess you could say, because as you're delighting in those things that God's made, um, inanimate things, you want to share them with mm-hmm. the people that God's made. Right. 
I I was right. um, reminded when reading just that, you know, for those of us that have, have kiddos at home, it's important to take the time to let them know that you delight in them because that's what God does to mm-hmm. us. And it was just such a good reminder that there's sometimes you just have to stop and look them in the eye and, and delight. Hmm. That's funny because, uh, friend of mine at a book group just the other week was saying the exact same thing about how she makes a point of telling her kids I love being your mom and that was a really mm. convicting thought to me like wow have I ever explicitly said that to my kids I mean yes there's always the I love you etc but letting them know very specifically that you delight in in that relationship and in them yeah I, I so visited important. with a mom friend recently and she was really cute she was just saying I just you know I, they're my favorite people, you know, and she said it right in front of them, you know, and, and you just Hmm. know, she means every minute of it. And I think it is, it's something that you add as your children grow because a toddler doesn't really understand the significance of that. Um, right. But as they get older, I know that my 11 year old really needs to know that from me. Yeah. Um, that I just think you're the bee's knees. (laughs) And there's so much pressure in the world to do the opposite right in front of them to say so many critical or putting down things when you're talking to fellow friends. I, I, it, yeah, it hurts me every time I see it happen. And yet I know I've been guilty of it. Um, well, you know, where mom will yeah, just say something I about view it as a loyalty that, thing. Like, are we, yeah. are, are, are they on my team? Are they my people? Hmm. Um, hmm. And it's so important for them to know that. And if you don't express that to them, why would they, as they grow, become teens, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. why would they express that loyalty back? to you. So I think that's hmm. where you start running into some of those um, hmm. stages yeah. where, you know, suddenly we're rolling our eyes. Well, if mom and right. dad rolled their eyes at the kids as they were growing up, what, what have they learned? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not yeah. exactly how you'd treat a guest. Speaking of hospitality, <laughs> watch me segue back right. in. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking how we were going to tie this tangent in. <laughs> <laughs> we're, and we're back. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they they are the most honored. Well, I was going to say guests, but that's not that they're guests, but they are the most honored people in our homes and they need to be reminded of that. Right. Cuz that can be a temptation with hospitality too is to focus so much on the new people coming into the home that we aren't showing hospitality first and foremost to our own household. Yeah, true. I I think I think there's a way to say that our children are our guests. Hmm. Even though that, you know, you would want the word to not mean it's common foreign to this location meaning in that right. sense. Mm-hmm. Instead, they're, and, and maybe that's a, maybe that's a sort of a Middle Eastern culture thing, you know, where the hospitality hmm. was like a, a tighter bond than hmm. family almost. It can actually hmm. oh. it can actually mean more than family uh, in some cultures. American culture right. doesn't have that that right. view, but but the the kind of code of ethics between host and guest and is it Greek culture and ancient Greek culture in particular that we see in things like the Odyssey? Yeah, was so, very powerful. Sort I, of I know like wine is thicker people. than blood. Like <laughs> right, <laughs> you share wine you together. Wine for? Right, right. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, I know there's some sort of really interesting lectures or book. Now I really, really need to go look those up 
If I find them, I will post them in the show notes. But someone gave a lecture on, I think, Greek hospitality and its connection to that that sort of code of ethics. Oh, I'd love to Code of ethics sounds one. very abstract, but like the rich relationship right. between uh, host and It guest. really was held in high regard and is right. a helpful thing to understand when you read back to biblical passages, which involve yes. hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, maybe a good example would be the prodigal son where um, the hospitality yeah. that his father showed him when he was returned was hmm. way more of a deal than we even acknowledge. Mm-hmm. That That's a is. good point. Because we don't have the same culture of hospitality in our modern world, we don't even realize how much it's a theme in the Bible. Right. It comes back in hmm. ways that we don't we don't necessarily pick up on. Um, mm-hmm. So I think um, Capon... You know, he 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 talks about all of that in relation to people, in relation to food. Um, he definitely slows down and gives time to God's creation in his book. So it's a little bit, mm-hmm. it's certainly not um, essay style, if that makes sense. There's uh-huh. poetry and... Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> meditations that seem to just uh, sort of fly away for a while mm-hmm. <laughs> and then come back. It's worth noting, yeah, it's worth noting that on your first time through, you might find it a little bit of a strange book. <laughs> yeah, I feel <laughs> like that's worth a worth, it. It's very, very caveat. worth it. Yeah. <laughs> um, on the theme of um, not being lukewarm about things, I feel like that's a favorite of ours because um, mm-hmm. We really want to be amateurs, lovers of right. the things that we talk about and the ideas that we explore and about life in general, um, in our homes and in the world. Um, and he he calls himself an amateur right at the very beginning. He yes. says, that's, mm-hmm. that's what I am. And he explains why he thinks that shouldn't be a disappointment to his readers. Right. Like, why, why is that important. Um, and he says the world may or may not need another cookbook, but it needs all the lovers, amateurs it can get. It is a gorgeous old place full of clownish graces and beautiful drolleries. And it has enough textures, tastes, and smells to keep us intrigued for more time than we have. Um, he says, unfortunately, however, our response to its loveliness is not always delight. It is far more often than it should be boredom. And that is not only odd, it is tragic. For boredom is not neutral. It is the fertilizing principle of unloveliness. So he's, you know, this is his, sort of his, um, his theme for the book is yeah. don't, don't be bored. <laughs> because yes. when you're bored with anything, it's going to look unlovely to you. Yes. And I think that is... I think that's one of the most powerful passages in the entire book right there. I mean, just coming back to it, I've read it so many times because that's one of my favorite quotes, Mm -hmm. but that really is so much of the problem with, well, just since the fall in general, like he's applying it here particularly to food, but that's true of so many things, you know, even in marriage, cultivating 
interest in the other person instead of boredom and what that boredom ultimately so often can lead to. Um, you know, how much boredom is behind just general disenchantment with the world and ultimately sin is a fascinating thought in in a world that's sort of accepted boredom, I think, as a neutral thing rather than a evil, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what um, he's fighting against. Right. Right. And it's and he talks, you know, about feasting. Like you look at the cover and you look at the beginning and you think, okay, we're going to be reading about how to have high level feasts here. And what he's actually talking about more than that is taking what he calls ferial food, which is, you know, the everyday yes. and mm-hmm. elevating that by not being bored with it. By right. spending time with it, Ferial. loving it, seeing what it is. Yeah. Um, and that's another theme that it can help to know of in advance, I think, when you go through the book, because that underlies a lot of what he's talking about, the theme of uh, ferial versus festal. Um, kind of, and, and I, I think when we think about the church here, we run into that a lot as well. You know, we have the holidays, the feast days of Easter, Christmas, etc. Um, and it's easy when we approach something like Christmas, we want Christmas all year round, but learning to appreciate the ferial days, learning to appreciate the normal, the commonplace is a big part of what he's Right. And he's not, he's not down on feasting, obviously, because that's sort of like the upper echelons of, (laughs) right. It's pushing it all. The supper of the lamb is the ultimate feast. Right. Right. He's he's pushing it all to the nth degree with feasting, but that, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I feel like it should be so much, especially of a woman's life, I think is spent on the ferial, not the festival Mm -hmm. or, or rather the ferial prepares for the festival that it should be a really encouraging read all around. Because it mm-hmm. gives you this new new eyes to look with appreciation on the everyday cooking that you do, um, mm-hmm. the everyday um, loving on your family by keeping the home and those kinds of things. And just right. um, this feeling like it, it has its own glory that with our culture of boredom is often not acknowledged because what's mm-hmm. what's interesting unless it's what's interesting and exciting unless it's over the top. Um, Right. Unless it's out of the ordinary. And he's kind of saying, you know, the ordinary. (laughs) Here we go. Right. Embrace the ordinary. There's, he's very Chestertonian, sort of how Chesterton describes coming back to Christianity and rediscovering that and realizing that the things he already knew are in fact the most miraculous after having searched for the novelties out there. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to sort of learn to come back home again. Yeah, it's, um, um, I think, I think if anyone has not out there has not read it yet, that you're going to find a lot of favorite quotables as you go through, (laughs) um, on, on amateur, uh, the concept of amateur and loving things. Um, but he also, as you were saying with being that Chestertonian style, he, he waxes eloquent on a lot of, topics, um, including place and what it means to be with Hmm. someone or even some thing. What does that closeness mean? Um, he, and, and with God, um, Mm -hmm. he talks about that as well. 
Yeah. Um, here's a great quote mm. that I love. Um, I have, <laughs> I have it marked with a little note in the margin from the first time I read it, um, sort of an mm-hmm. underline. And then this, I have a big exclamation point <laughs> for the second time I went through, because how do you emphasize what's already been emphasized? Um, he it says, would be easy to underline this whole book. Right, right. And he says, uh, man's real work is to look at the things of the world and to love them for what they are. And how true mm. is that, that um, Adam's mandate to mm. go through the world and subdue it? But what was he supposed to do? Name things? And Capon would say to love them, to see them, to see them the way God does. And he keeps going and says, that is after all what God does. And man was not made in in God's image for nothing. Hmm. Oh, do you know what page that is? Uh, 19. That's on page 19. (laughs) Okay. Wait, there was something later on that was similar to that, that I had been wanting to quote. I'll see if I can find it. You can also tell that Capon is, is... Um, his personality is playful. He says a couple really mm-hmm. funny things. So be watching because they're quirky, funny. <laughs> um, I don't have, I wouldn't say that a lot of books on food that are on my shelf have um, ha-ha written in the margin. <laughs> but in Capon, <laughs> I do have it there. So... Hmm. I think we're going to have to come back probably next time as far as the um, topic of calories. Yes. I was just thinking, is it worth opening that can of worms this time? Do I really want to get into that? I wonder if we should come back to (laughs) that particular one because Mm -hmm. it just, it requires its own time anyway, but that'll be a little teaser and you may just want to go grab the book and find out what we're talking about, but um, that's in great thoughts. That's in the chapter, the burnt offering, um, mm-hmm. chapter three. Um, so that that's something that yes, Valerie and I have discussed quite a bit, and what, that will be fun to <laughs> to talk over. Um, yes, I think uh, actually he talks about it some in chapter four as well. So if anyone mm-hmm. wants to go and read it, get a little preview. <laughs> yes, that's and I think it comes it. up elsewhere. And little bits and pieces. It's another one of those themes that keeps cropping up. Um, it also strikes me that another way of describing uh, a lot of his approach to w- what we're talking about, like the delighting and things, is that it's anti-utilitarian in a way that I think you and I have learned to love when it comes to education. Mm-hmm. And he's taking a lot of those similar ideas, basically the liberal arts approach of um, learning not for the sake of some pragmatic end, but because of delighting in things, delighting in wisdom and knowledge. And he's taking a lot of uh, that mindset and applying it to food and by extension, the created world. Um, so mm-hmm. you have written down at page 111 says that (laughs) well there's this fantastic little parable that he writes on page 110 through 111 he's describing let me see if i can just summarize it so i don't have to read the whole thing out loud but basically it's this he's imagining in a sort of um milton-esque way satan trying to take down the world with his team of tempters 
and everyone's suggesting all the classics that have already been done. Um, and then one new, it's sort of actually screw tape would probably be what it's most similar to. Yeah. One, one new little devil, yes, says that he's discovered a new way. Um, so he says, I do not mean to take anything from him, from man physically. Instead, we shall encourage him mentally to alienate himself from reality. I propose that we contrive a systematic substitution of abstractions, diagrams, and spiritualizations for actual beings. Man must be taught to see things as symbols, must be trained to use them for effect and never for themselves. Above all, the door of delight must remain firmly closed. Uh, and then he goes on from there and basically just the, well, I guess this is still coming back to a little bit of a teaser towards the chapter on calories, but how much we reduce food to what it can do for us or what novel sensation we can get out of it in a very trite way. Um, thinking of how often we describe food as simply flavor-packed, for example, without thinking about any of its other qualities or richness. Right. And now um, I'm scrambling for another mm -hmm. quote that relates to this. Oh, yes. I'm not sure if I can <laughs> find it in time. Um, he, he basically says, um, similar to this, that man does want to reduce food to what it does for him. And ultimately, right. um, oh, he's talking about nutrition. And he said, ultimately, mm. we need nutrition for oh, now. Yes, I know the quote you're talking about. Oh, maybe you can mm -hmm. find it. He says, ultimately, we need nutrition for now. I do have it underlined <laughs> um, somewhere, somewhere in here. Um, but we need taste for eternity, um, that mm -hmm. there will be food in eternity, but it isn't going to be nutritious. Oh, here we go. It's on page 40. Mm. Um, man invented cooking before he thought of nutrition. To be sure, food keeps us alive, but that is only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. Nourishment is necessary only for a while. What we shall need forever is taste. Hmm. And that might also work well as a good summary of his entire book. I mean, that's sort of where yes. the title comes from. Mm -hmm. That's that title and paragraph. <laughs> and again, shows how closely connected it is to hospitality the heavenly banquet and, and the graciousness of God. Uh, a little bit below that, he uh, has another, let's see, where, where can I start the paragraph? Um, food, here, I'll, I'll start. This is towards the end of the following paragraph, just as a follow-up quote to that. Food is the daily sacrament of unnecessary goodness, ordained for a continual remembrance continual remembrance that the world will always be more delicious than it is useful. Necessity is the mother only of cliches. It takes playfulness to make poetry. Mm. And he really does do that in this book. He gets, he, right. he gets playful with the idea of food, feasting, the, the world and creation and, and writes chapters that are pretty much just poetry. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and again, that's just tying back to his, um, to his desire to run from boredom and cliche mm -hmm. and necessity and usefulness and run straight mm -hmm. to playfulness, poetry, delight, um, the beauty of the world, the, the wonderful taste of food. Mm -hmm. um, 
And he does it all in a very humble, it really is a humble fashion. I think that mm-hmm. concept of ferial is what keeps it there. It's not, yes. um, it's not just a book about high level feasts. Like he's not talking right. weddings and Christmas and, um, and those have been treated of by other author, authors. So he really mm-hmm. does give us, I think, a, 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 a neat perspective that's different from mm-hmm. some of the others. Um, right. And he's not being elitist either about it. Right. He, it's right. a book that welcomes everyone to the table. Um, and he, he has his own quirks. You know, I think he talks at one point about how much he loves canned fruit, <laughs> canned fruit cocktail. <laughs> um, but then he also loves the, the great things in the culinary Right, world right. Too. Doesn't, he, doesn't he talk about how he'll always enjoy processed cheese? <laughs> was, I think that may have been another one. Yes. Which he gives I'm sort sure... of like a list of very, very disarming list of sort of disclaimers. <laughs> yeah. At the very beginning, just apo- not mm-hmm. apologizing for himself, but just explaining this is mm-hmm. who I am. <laughs> right. Um, but it, but it, I feel like it gives the reader permission to be that too, to just be Mm-hmm. An everyday person who loves yes. beauty and creation and food right. and others. And and that playfulness helps both him and then you as the reader not take oneself too seriously in approaching it or to take the food too seriously in a way that turns it into an idol. He very much pushes against that as well. I know it comes up in the, the wine chapter in particular. Um but by pushing back against it with playfulness, he keeps it in its in its uh, proper place. Sort of the idea of rightly ordered love, as Augustine would put it, um, the rightly ordered loves of of created goods, but in a way that allows us to truly delight in them and mm. not not be gnostic. It, yeah, Dying and that does. To last I, episode, I think on that gifts feast. us with a certain abandon in the kitchen. Also, he he definitely mm. doesn't set up a series of. Um, rules he definitely wants to he he has mistakes that he suggests to avoid like he is very much right. a proponent of sharp knives for example yes and <laughs> doesn't want anyone to have a dull one you know those sorts of things so it's not that he has and never use water unless you have to right and he so he's not that he has no principles at all and that he's just letting it be a free-for-all far from it um part of being an amateur lover of this is to is to to go further up and further in. Um, right. And to care deeply. Right. To care deeply. And, and you're caring, you will, it, the, that caring will pour out um, in your cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, because it isn't just a set, a rule book or even a cookbook per se, it gives you some curiosity and abandon. I think I, I, um, mm-hmm. I read him the second time and went and was, I had a roast chicken and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to spatchcock this chicken. <laughs> and it was something that it, his tone and his excitement and his delight sort of gave me the feeling like I should just do this. You know, this could be a yes. normal roast chicken or this could be a spatchcocked roast chicken. <laughs> um, and, and it was actually really fun to do something new mm-hmm. and um, add some herbs and flavors that I hadn't normally added and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, well, 
Welcome to the dark side, by the way. <laughs> I've started almost always spatchcocking my chickens because I never leave enough time before dinner to roast, all, there <laughs> to roast is it the, whole. The beauty, there is beauty to that practicality as well because it is done quickly. <laughs> um, but yeah. I think it also just absorbs juices better. I think the, mm-hmm. the chicken breast ends yeah. up not as dry and um, you can certainly um, get really good coverage of your herbs and spices. Right, because it's more surface area. Right, right. Rather than the rounded shape of a, uh, you know, straight from the farm roast chicken. <laughs> right, right. So, so all so of, we both highly recommend spatchcocking your chicken, yes, by the way. Yes, and it is not as hard as it sounds, um, but you do need a sharp knife. Yes, Don't mess or really a, good shears, although uh, it will... Uh, were you about to say don't use shears? Oh, no, actually. I was just going to say don't use a dull knife because that's impossible. Oh, yes. <laughs> so. You know, I, I actually have to admit I've never done it with a knife. I've always done it with scissors. I love to try it with a knife because I do find it very difficult with scissors. My kitchen shears are currently missing in action. So I went right for my chef's knife. Um, and he does, by the way, have tips about buying good knives. And yes. he does not require you to buy a whole set. He just has a few basics that he recommends. Right. Um, so that's a fun chapter, a fun section. Um, but yeah, I just mm-hmm. took my chef's knife and gave it a good little sharpening before I used it. And it ended up being mm. ironically pretty successful. So, And my chef's knife is old and not well cared for, I confess. So he is, yeah, that's a good warning probably is just he will make you want to buy a new yes. good chef's knife. <laughs> uh, but overall, yeah, he's really not, he hates gadgets. That's another thing for the most part. There are a few exceptions, but by and large, he cordially dislikes, perhaps I should say gadgets. But that keeps things simple uh, too. Mm-hmm. It really well, is. And, and I think that's right. It keeps things simple. And I think that's part of the, the beauty of the what he's talking about is that you learn to pay attention to what you're actually doing and to delight in it when you're not distancing yourself from the process with a gadget. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely um, encourages you to, to take your time and not complicate mm-hmm. things. There's a certain beauty in the simplicity. Right. Um, and he sort of, <laughs> in one humorous section, rejoices in the wild beauty of a woman wielding a sharp cleaver in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Doesn't he even call it the antidote to feminism or something? Uh, I think maybe, uh, you know, he really paints this quite formidable uh, image of, <laughs> of someone wielding, uh, you know, a sharp cleaver in the kitchen and how you really don't want to, you really don't want to uh, mess with that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the woman in her domain. Exactly. But it definitely made uh, me want got, to buy a cleaver too. <laughs> I I have been wondering. I have not I have a chef's knife. I've not gone to the step of getting a cleaver yet and I'm wondering if I need to, especially with things like spatchcocking. I, I thought it was interesting mm-hmm. that he really does recommend a small one. Which is mm-hmm. kind of nice. It feels a little less mm-hmm. daunting. Um right. for home use, he, he I think it's he I think he said a four inch. So not not really that big at all. Was it four inch? I missed the dimensions. But huh, he that's very reasonable. Yeah, he suggests that it can be used for a lot more purposes than we than we generally give it credit for. Right. So I thought that was interesting. Mm. 
Oh, I, I need to read the cleaver section because I just felt like I didn't do justice to it when I was talking about right. it. So here, here it is. Uh, a woman with cleaver in mid-swing is no mere woman. She breaks upon the eye of the beholder as an epiphany of power, as mistress of a house in which only trifles may be trifled with and in which she defines the trifles. A man who has seen women only as gentle arrangers of flowers has not seen all that women have to offer. Unsuspected majesties await him. (laughs) And that's, that's the kind of, you know, the thing that you're going to footnote with a ha ha. That's, that's the kind of stuff you're going to get from (laughs) Robert Capon. There's more than one passage. um, And, and along, yes, like that. And along the way, pick up some, fantastic observations on not only human nature, but marriage in particular. Yes. I feel that my impression is that his relationship with his wife was very sweet and very playful. Um, Yes. Playful and affectionate. Yes. One one gets the impression. I also found uh, another quote that um, relates back to uh, what we were talking about this time on the idolatry topic. And this is another one of those starred quotes that I, (laughs) highlighted Um, every time he diagrams something this is page 20 by the way every time he diagrams something instead of looking at it every time he regards it regards not what a thing is but what it can be made to mean to him every time he substitutes a conceit for a fact he gets grease all over the kitchen of the world Hmm. reality slips away from him and he is left with nothing but the oldest monstrosity in the world an idol Things must be met for themselves. To take them only for their meaning, meaning is to convert them into gods, to make them too important, and therefore to make them unimportant altogether. Idolatry has two faults. It is not only a slur on the true god, it is also an insult to true things. Hmm. So, yeah, that, let's see, I think, so again, the themes that keep popping up, because he mentions it in the part that I read more recently that was fresher in my memory. Um, what is that? Chapter 10 maybe, but then this is towards the beginning. And I think that's an even better summary of what he's getting at with looking at things for what they are and delighting in them, um, appropriately, Mm -hmm. not taking them too seriously, but taking them seriously at the same time. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's a, that's that ties in with the concept of amateur, but also with yes. delighting and um, not being bored of a thing or not making a thing boring by diagramming it too, because you can right. be bored or you can make a thing boring by your approach mm-hmm. to it, um, mm-hmm. both of which end up being problematic. Well, I yes. um, think that is our time for today and I'm really looking forward to talking about calories <laughs> yes. and, and maybe we've given you <laughs> enough of a taste now that you can guess where Robert Gapon's going to go with the concept of measuring food in terms of um, this random scientific scale so to speak um, this esoteric yes. approach to food. Evaluating its usefulness to your body. Right, right. I'm, I'm sure everyone's already jumping to conclusions about where that's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, this will be a fun discussion. Uh, sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. 
Thanks so much, Valerie. All right. Bye, Lydia. See you next time.